welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. Sermon by Chris Wiley on January 16th, Lord's Day Service. Beginning a series of messages from Ecclesiastes, and I'll be uh, preaching from the book of Ecclesiastes as I visit with you over the next year or so, and um, hopefully this will be a blessing for you. Let me read to you a portion of the first chapter. I'm actually going to cover some uh, scripture from both chapters one and two uh, during the course of my sermon. But uh, rather than read the whole thing at once, I'll return to the text a few more times over the course of the sermon and fill you in on what I haven't read now. So Ecclesiastes chapter 1, beginning at verse 1, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north and round and around goes the wind and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. There is a thing of which it is said, or is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new. It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of latter things yet to be among those who come after. Let's pray. Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart will be acceptable to you, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I know what you're probably thinking. Ecclesiastes, what a downer. I mean, we need something to kind of lift our spirits when the air is cold and the snow is on the ground. And, and uh, you know, I, I get that. But I think uh, the work of proclaiming the good news means that there needs to be a little disillusionment every now and then. I talked a little bit about that last night, and I'll talk a little bit about my more, uh, a little more about that today. But uh, when it comes to this whole matter of how we live well in the world, the good life, you know, what does that entail? Well, I, I do believe that there is a connection between the news of the gospel and the good life. And when I say the good life, I mean it in the fullest sense, good in the moral sense, living good lives, but also good in the sense of enjoying ourselves and enjoying a good life. And that's what usually people mean when they say the good life, 
right? When people say the good life, you have this image in your mind that appears as some, some yacht somewhere in the Caribbean off the, off the coast of Greece, right? And you're just, you know, doing nothing but eating grapes and drinking. The good life. Well, there is a connection uh, between the gospel and the good life, but what I just described in some sense is a bit misleading. It's kind of illusory. And what Solomon is dealing with here are illusions that uh, we have to entertain and live with as we live our lives in this world. And consequently, a little disillusionment is a good thing. What we have here in Ecclesiastes is a man who had it all. And he'll tell you how much he had over the course of the book of Ecclesiastes. And he was disillusioned with all of that. He was longing for something real. And hopefully by the time I'm done today, I can help you see what's real. Now, uh, the first chapter begins with this refrain, this lament that everything is vain. Look at chapter 1, verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanity, all is vanity. Now, just so you know, the word that we translate into the English word vanity doesn't literally mean what we normally think of when we say vain. It's actually a word, hebel, in Hebrew that uh, actually to something vaporous in character, something that kind of burns away in the heat of the day, sort of like fog in San Francisco on a typical morning. You look out on the bay in San Francisco and it's just filled with fog and over the course of the day it just all kinds of burn, it just, you know, it just burns away. And uh, what we have in James, chapter 4, verse 14, when James talks about our lives, he says rhetorically, what is your life? It's a mist that appears on the horizon for a period of time and then just evaporates, it just burns away. And so this is a, a difficult thing to accept for a lot of reasons. And uh, we live in a world where it just doesn't seem like there's much of a purpose to the things that we see around us, particularly since uh, we're going to pass away and we won't be remembered. Um, the images that are, are used here in this passage uh, are uh, noteworthy. He talks about, and this is, by the way, is a refrain that we hear throughout the course of Ecclesiastes, our lives under the sun. Now, that's implying, of course, that our lives are subject to the ordering of God's uh, timing. Uh, reference to the sun, the lights above should bring, you know, the creation of the world to mind and how the lights above order our understanding of time and the passage of time. Uh, so there's that, but then there's also the heat of the sun that evaporates vapor and I think that's also in mind uh, here at this point. So there are seasons, there are years that are marked by the movements of the lights above but I think that most of us when we think about this image don't think about that so much as we think about just a sense that time just keeps flowing and things keep changing and we change in the process. The person I look at in the, you know, the mirror today is not, doesn't look a whole lot like the guy I saw looking back at me in the mirror 30 years ago. That guy had black hair, you know, and a black beard. He looked a lot more like my sons who got full black beards and black hair. And, and I think, I used to look like that. But it's gone now. It's evaporated. The, 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 the color in my hair has evaporated. It's just passed away. It's gone out. of been burned away by the sun. Now, 
there may come to mind that great song from Fiddler on the Roof. Do you remember Fiddler on the Roof, that, that marvelous musical? Sunrise, Sunset. You now there we have Tevye, his first daughter is being married. And of course, as he's witnessing her marriage, he remembers the little girl that he had on his lap. Thinks about the joy that he has known as he's been able to see her grow. And the song, if you don't recall, goes... Sunrise, sunset, sunrise, sunset, swiftly fly the years, one season following another, laden with happiness and tears. And I think that's what we have here with Solomon reflecting on the passage of time. And there are these cycles. By the way, there are the four elements being referred to here. The sun being fire, air, right? The circuits of the wind, the, the, the streams that flow into the sea, and the earth. And all of these things seem permanent, and yet there's this ongoing process that they're passing through. But the cycles don't take you anywhere. It's not like you're on a bike riding to a destination, or at least it doesn't feel that way. It just feels like the same old thing again and again and again. And there's nothing new. There's nothing new. What you think is new, Solomon says rhetorically, really isn't new. It happened before. One of the things that's remarkable to learn when you study uh, the uh, literature of antiquity is that they thought of themselves as modern, and they thought about the people who came before them as ancients. If you read, you know, Plato or Aristotle, even going further back, you know, and it's true in other parts of the world, they thought of time just receding into the, into the distant past. And if you read, say, uh, Aristotle's politics, you'll see that everything they describe, or he describes in terms of the sort of the growth and the development of, of political, uh, you know, constitutions and states, uh, for him was all stuff that occurred in the past and there were just, the, the past was replete with just, examples that show how particular ways of doing things have a way of uh, decaying and, and uh, being corrupted. And if you look at our world today and read Aristotle's politics, you'll recognize everything that's going on in the daily news from, you know, like the fourth century BC. <laughs> you know, it's the same old stuff. It's the same old stuff. We're just not all that original. Just as the same old thing over and over again. Now, in light of this ennui that uh, we see here being felt by Solomon, uh, he turns to different things to relieve himself. One of those things is wisdom and the other is pleasure. And we see those things addressed at the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2. But let me focus on wisdom to begin with. Because we associate, right, Solomon with wisdom. And you'd think, okay, well, that's where he would turn to find answers. And this is what he says, verse 12. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out the wisdom, all that is done, or by wisdom, all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be uh, busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. By the way, that 
phrase, striving after wind, comes up again and again throughout, the, with, throughout Ecclesiastes. Verse 15, what is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. So the more you know, the more you have to mourn. It's been a debate in the history of philosophy for a long time. Does wisdom make you happy or does it make you miserable? Uh, the advocates of happiness, like Montaigne, said that, well, the more you uh, grow in wisdom, the more you realize that all the things that you think are really terrible and really uh, awful uh, really don't have, you know, a whole lot of impact on what really matters in life. You can enjoy the things that are, that are still the most enjoyable things you can know. You know, it's like the old saying, you know, the best things in life are free. There's certain things that really can't be taken from you. And if you just uh, give yourself over to those things and just dismiss the, the vanity and the foolishness of the people around you, you'll, you can achieve a kind of tranquility. You can kind of pass through life uh, unperturbed by all the nonsense you see around you. On the other hand, you know, there have been thinkers like Schopenhauer that said, no, it doesn't work that way at all. The more you grow in wisdom, the more you realize how idiotic everything is, including the other people around you who are closest to you who really do have an effect on your life. And so you're subject to all this nonsense and all this idiocy, and it makes you miserable. And then we have Solomon. He uh, chips in his opinion here, and he sides more with, guess who? That grump Schopenhauer. That grump Schopenhauer seems to have at least uh, that much in common with Solomon. Well, with that in mind, Solomon turns to pleasure. And we see him do that in the first 11 verses of chapter 2. And there he says, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under, the, under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves, and slaves were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines to delight uh, the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil 
I had expended in doing it, and behold, behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. He pursues pleasure. He says, since this doesn't seem to be going anywhere, we might as well enjoy ourselves on this ride to nowhere. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. And uh, he gives himself over to pleasure, but he doesn't do so uh, in an irresponsible way. He tempers his pursuit of pleasure by wisdom. By the way, Epicurus, the uh, philosopher that we you know, derive the word Epicurean from, uh, sometimes people assume that he was just, you know, uh, just completely given over to a life of, you know, of, of desolation, but he wasn't. He uh, tempered his, his pl- uh, pursuit of pleasure, and, and, and in his thinking, the, the proper path to, to pursue uh, when you're pursuing pleasure is to sort of manage your desires so that uh, they're kind of easy to satisfy. And uh, he brought around him a group of philosophers that became known as the garden philosophers. And they were known as the garden philosophers. They would sit in the garden all day, you know, surrounded by uh, shrubs and just drink wine and and talk about, you know, the latest play that was being, you know, performed from Sophocles down the way and that kind of stuff. And they didn't get involved in political matters because after all, politics can kind of get you upset. And so they just avoided that. Uh, so it wasn't a, a life of desolation uh, so much as it was one tempered. Uh, but, you know, as you can see with Epicurus, it becomes kind of frivolous after a while. And I think the same thing can be said for Solomon and what he's referring to here. And, you know, this guy, too, I mean, he accomplished a lot. He describes all the things that he's been able to achieve. You know, he's not only the wisest guy around by the estimation of his neighbors, remember the Queen of Sheba and her, uh, her you know, pilgrimage to Jerusalem to learn at the feet of Solomon. Well, he had a lot of stuff. He was kind of the, you could say he was the Elon Musk of his day. He had anything he'd want, the wealthiest man around. And uh, with all of, these, uh, all of these things, all of this accumulation and this, this accomplishment, you know, he says in the end, what's this all for? And he goes on to say later, you know, I'm going to die and some fool is going to get my stuff. All the stuff I've labored to, to acquire is going to fall into the hands of who knows who. And then that fool will squander it or who knows what he'll do with it. And we see that in our world today, you know, people, even in the course of my lifetime, who were once famous, people don't even remember anymore. I, uh, in a conversation, brought up Robert Schuller with a young preacher guy. And probably half of you have no clue who I'm referring to. The older folks know who I'm referring to and the hour of power and the robes and the fancy, and the fancy church, you know, the Crystal Cathedral. You know, but this guy had never heard of Robert Schuller, and Robert Schuller was the guy every preacher wanted to be in 1988. He was a bestseller on the New York Times. He uh, was wealthy. And you know what has become of his church? It went bankrupt. He died. It went bankrupt. The Crystal Cathedral, this, well, monstrosity in my opinion, I was taken over by the Catholic Church and now belongs to the, uh, the Diocese of Orange County in California. 
And that's it. There you go. Robert Schuller has fallen into the sea of forgetfulness. We don't remember him anymore, and he was the biggest thing around. Now, all of this, of course, can make you just throw up your hands and say, what's the use? What's the use? Is this all there is? Well, does it all end in exasperation? Does it all end with a kind of uh, dismissal of life as striving after the wind? Is, is that all there is? Or is something left uncounted? Remember, he talks about counting back in verse 15 of chapter 1. That was a fascinating statement. I'd like you to consider it with me. He says there, what is crooked cannot be made straight. In other words, this is the way things are. We can't fix it. Furthermore, what is lacking cannot be counted. But does that mean that's all there is? Just because you don't know doesn't mean not so. Just because you don't know doesn't mean not so. There is something new. God has promised a new thing. We see that back in Isaiah, or actually forward in Isaiah, chapter Chapter 56, let me take you there. Chapter 56, uh, there uh, in verse 17, there's a promise made. And here the promise is, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. The order of things in which things are forgotten itself will be forgotten because something new will come into to being. That new thing at that time could not be counted. But God has promised that new thing. And accounting for that new thing is what I'd like to do with uh, these next few moments as I address this thought. Accounting for the new thing is something Solomon could not do because it wasn't in, say, the, uh, the purview of his competence to deal with that new thing. If you look at Matthew uh, chapter four, uh, 12... In verse 42, you'll see Jesus himself compare himself to Solomon. He says there, uh, when he's uh, speaking to people who are around him, and he says, uh, let me see, I think that was uh, verse 42. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Who is that something greater? Is the Lord Jesus Christ, the one we worship. He is that new thing. But uh, in a sense, he's not new at all, right? He is the second person of the Trinity. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He's the one that now can be counted. Now, what is it about Christ that has introduced something new to the world? I'd like to consider that with you for a little bit. Remember in 1 Corinthians, the first chapter, verses 18 through 25, Paul dismisses the wisdom of the Greeks. That kind of stings a little bit for me. I like reading the Greeks, but... I know what he's getting at. There is something that they didn't know, something they could not count because they lacked the faith to see 
what that thing is. But we who enjoy uh, the message of the gospel and have heard the truth of the gospel know something that they don't know. We know something that Plato didn't know. Aristotle didn't know. Epicurus didn't know. Zeno didn't know. Those sages in antiquity just did not know what? About the resurrection. The resurrection is the new thing. Never happened before. And we see the Apostle Paul pronouncing or proclaiming the good news to those philosophers in Athens in Acts chapter 17, don't we? Right? Stoic and Epicurean philosophers said, hey, why don't you tell us a little more about this message you have, Paul? Let's meet over here at the Areopagus on Mars Hill and let's, uh, let's hear what you have to say. And when Paul addresses them, he tells them in the early part of his address lots of things they already knew. Lots of things they already believed. It was only when he got to the punchline at the very end that he introduces something new to them. And what does he introduce to them? What does he tell them about that they had not heard before? Jesus had risen from the dead and God was going to judge the world through that man. They had never heard that before. And they dismissed it as foolishness. Why? Because it had never happened before. They had no empirical evidence for this. Had anyone ever seen this before? No. It's a new thing. That's why no one had ever seen it before. It had never happened before. Jesus had been raised from the dead. And that is good news for you and me because it's because he's been raised that we are justified. Romans chapter 4, verse 25, raised for our justification. I think that the resurrection, the doctrine of the resurrection is, this is a weird thing to say, underappreciated in Reformed churches. We don't realize it's through the resurrection that we're justified. Yes, of course, Christ is offered up as a propitiation for our sins. But you know what? Lots of rabbis had died. Lots and lots of rabbis had been crucified. And no one had ever been justified by those crucifixions, even when those crucifixions were unjust in character. It was through the resurrection and the vindication of the Son of God as God himself overruled the judgment of man and said, you're wrong, he's just, you're unjust. And it's because of that that we are justified when we have faith in him. That's how it works. It's through the resurrection that we're justified. And Paul, if you recall, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says, if Christ has not been raised, we're wasting our time. We're wasting our time. We're still in our sins. That's in the resurrection. Christ raised and ascended on high. And that's what faith can see that wisdom cannot. Faith can see the Son of God seated at the right hand. And that's why the wisdom of God is wiser than the wisdom of man. And the weakness of God is stronger than the strength of man. With those things in mind, I hope this sermon has been an encouragement and not a downer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the new thing. Thank you for the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, because we know we uh, have the first fruits 
of all that you have in store for us. And we enjoy those first fruits through the work of your Holy Spirit in our lives as we confess that Christ is Lord and is raised and seated at your right hand. And we look forward to our own resurrection someday because of what you have in store for us, because of what has been done for us. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks for listening. If you want to find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com.